Hey everyone, this is Jason Shappert, and you're listening to the Private Pilot Podcast by M0A.com, where a good pilot is always learning. It's the unexpected we always try to prepare for. Hey everyone, Jason Shepard here of M0A.com, and you are listening to the Private Pilot Podcast brought to you by our number one rated online ground school. Visit groundschoolacademy.com for all your flight training, your ground training needs written test prep, check ride prep, and most importantly, making you a safe real-world pilot. If you love these podcasts, if you love the videos we put on Facebook and on YouTube, you're going to love the paid content inside of our online ground school. Today's topic is this idea of what to do in case of an emergency. And so often I'm finding just especially doing flight reviews for for friends and and people who've become friends because I've done their flight reviews just for the past 10 years, and you see them every 24 calendar months, and you always have that conversation. When's the last time you did steep turns, slow flight stalls? When's the last time you actually simulated an emergency, pulled the power even back to idle on the downwind and, and did like a power off 180 back down to land on the runway? And almost nine times out of 10, the answer is 24 months ago, Jason, when you made me do all that stuff. And again, I've been really harping big time on currency and proficiency. And that's, you know, not beyond the scope of this podcast, but the scope of this podcast is to talk specifically about emergency procedures and how we can prepare for them. Because you're in such a neat spot right now. When you are active in your flight training, if you look at the NTSB reports, Individuals active in their flight training or even within the first 10 to 20 hours after earning their private pilot certificate, those are actually some of the safest times according to the NTSB and according to the accident rates. It's the higher time pilots that are causing some of these issues. You would think, geez, Jason, I bet it's these students on their solos that cause all these accidents. That's not the case. The case is actually after you earn your private pilot certificate and complacency starts to set in. Think of it like this. You've been doing your pre-flight inspection checklist in hand. You go through it line item by line item and you just work your way through it. Then eventually, well, you kind of go through it. The checklist is in your hand and you kind of just reference it. And then eventually the checklist stays in the plane because you've done the, the done it so much you just know everything that's going to be on there. And you want to even confirm with the checklist. You can you see how complacency sets in when I when I word it that way? Well, emergency procedures are the same thing. But unlike a pre-flight, which you do and, and prepare for every single time, you don't hopefully you never have to exercise the skills you obtain doing simulated engine failure failures and, and working through those procedures. I hope I hope that everything I'm teaching on this podcast you never actually have to use. I hope you go out there and practice it, but I just hope and pray that you never have to use. And I want to share a quick story. And I shared this story. I did a, a live stream. Um, we travel a lot and I can't always, I, I want to deliver so many seminars. We're doing 50 cities this year alone and my travel schedule has just been crazy with these safety seminars, air shows, growing our business, um, 
building out our CFI online ground school. So many, so many things have been going on. So some of the seminars um, that I, I can't actually physically make it to were actually live streaming to them. They set up a projector and I, I kind of simulcast in um, and do that. This one was in Lake Placid, New York. And I had literally forgotten about this story until, until it was really kind of brought up, this topic of an engine failure on takeoff and, and complacency tied into it. So hear me out on this. And I haven't shared this publicly other than with that group of 20 or 30 guys that we're doing the simulcast to, guys and gals out there in Lake Placid. So this is your first time hearing this, I bet. One of my very first aviation jobs was a traffic pilot. By traffic pilot, I mean I was in Jacksonville, Florida. I used to fly a 172, oddly enough, 7159 Quebec, which is now November 23 Mike Zulu. More on that later. I uh, just repainted it, redid the interior, but it was 7159 Quebec. I was one of my first jobs. Lucky enough to buy that airplane many years later. Uh, but I'd bounce between 59 Quebec and another airplane, 1180 Mike. And um, I would do traffic, depending on one's down for 100 hours, one's down for annual. We'd always have an airplane up and flying for traffic. And the, the goal of traffic was two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening, I would report traffic accidents to local radio stations. So literally, I'd start at seven in the morning, I'd go till nine in the morning, sometimes a little bit later if traffic was really backed up, and I would just fly the beltway around Jacksonville. I would talk to ATC and everything else because there's a lot of airspace around there. I had a special microphone and a special radio to talk to the radio stations to communicate. Hey, there we're backed up from the top of the span of, of you know the Buckman Bridge all the way on back to this road. And I, I would I would lay it all out. I mean, I had to know the roads forwards and backwards in Jacksonville. I could I could spot any road intersection from the air, but don't put me on the ground. I'd get, end up getting lost, as funny as that sounds. But as you can imagine, when you do that for over a year, two years, four hours a day, every day, two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, every single day, complacency really starts to set in. Literally, it's I wake up at the same time. I fly in the same airplane. I talk to the same ground controller, the same, same approach controllers. I fly the same loops. It's the same people at the radio station. Everything. Just imagine two years of doing everything the same. Complacency really starts to set in. And I would get very complacent with that. And I'm just being honest with you. I was, I was a young flight instructor at the time, thankful to be building time. But when you've been doing the same thing for two years, you get very complacent. And I remember there came a time where I decided I wanted to really start to grow. I mean, I had M0A.com at the time, but it was nothing uh, to what it is today. It was just a text blog. And I decided, listen, I really want to, I think I have something here. I really want to grow this. I'm going to move back to Ocala, uh, where I'm from, uh, in Florida. So I moved back to Ocala, and I trained somebody else to do the traffic job. And we're still friends to this day with this, this gentleman. His name is Ed. And literally... Two days into the job, Ed has an engine failure on takeoff, lost a cylinder in the exact same airplane I'd been flying on a morning flight doing, it, it just as easily could have been me two days later. Same airplane, everything else. And I remember thinking, and, and Ed, uh, it was just a lost cylinder, so it was, it was hitting on only three cylinders. It was very violent. Very similar thing happened to me before in, in 512 Romeo. Uh, Ed was able to nurse it around the traffic pattern while losing altitude and put it actually back down safely on the runway, flying like a 200-foot traffic pattern, as scary as that sounds. And I remember thinking, here's Ed. 
I had just trained them for this. And I went back to my mindset when I first started traffic, or maybe for you when you first became a private pilot, you're so excited. Everything, it's checklist in hand. Everything is just, I don't want to say by the book, but that, that's, that's the analogy I'm trying to look for. I'm not saying I wasn't by the book by any means. I'm just saying the complacency wasn't there. So as crazy as it sounds, I believe, I am so thankful that engine failure didn't happen to me because I was so complacent that I don't know if I would have handled it as well as Ed did, who was brand new, fresh out of training, knew everything, was ready to go, and was on his toes the whole time, where I was probably had just rolled out of bed um, and going to go do this flight because the rent is due at the end of the month and I've got to make ends meet kind of thing. You, you understand what I'm saying? Where complacency sneaks in. It's not these low time pilots adding up to our accident rate. It's higher time pilots that cause this to happen. So let's go through now some story. You know, I like to tell stories, so I apologize for rambling. Hopefully you, you enjoy, you're enjoying the stories. What do you do in case of an emergency? Well, you know, I always teach the ABCs of an emergency. Airspeed was my best, my best glide speed. B, where is my best place to land this airplane? Where's my best landing area? Keeping in mind, my best landing area might be behind me or below me. So many times I see students get tunnel vision. I pull the throttle back to idle. I say, your engine just quit. And they only look straight out in front of them. And as a sneaky flight instructor, oftentimes I'll put that perfect grass strip, that perfect airport, that perfect field, whatever it may be, right underneath of us. It's a spot they normally don't look. You're allowed to make shallow turns to help you look, to find that perfect spot. But in reality, especially as you get to the cross-country phase of things, you should be playing. I always play a game that when I'm flying, I always have an la emergency landing site picked out. I'm flying along, I'd be at 3,500 feet on a cross country. I look and I say, man, that field right over there looks great. And we fly, we fly, we fly. And until that flight is, that, that field is beyond my power off gliding distance, then I change fields and go, okay, ooh, you know what? There's an airport up here now. That's my emergency site if something were to happen. And I always have, it's, it's a game to me. Where would I go if my engine quit? Ask yourself that question. Questions are a powerful way to get answers, right? So always thinking, always having that way out. Airspeed, best landing area, and the C is checklist. Now, checklist is obviously on a time-permitting basis. If you have an engine failure on takeoff or really an engine failure below 1,000 feet, I don't want you fumbling around with a checklist. You're about to make the most important landing of your life. The last thing I want you to do is be fumbling around trying to read through a checklist. You should have a flow check memorized. Maybe for you, it starts on the floor. Fuel selector valve on both. Mixture's rich. Come across. Check my car P. Check my throttle. All the way on across. Is the primer unlocked? Is the ignition still on both? Try to crank it again. Crank, crank, crank. Darn it, nothing happened. 7700, you know, 1215, uh, some controlled frequency. 121.5 being no longer officially monitored is a tough one to use, but some sort of frequency where I know I'm going to talk to another human would be real helpful, preferably a human with a radar screen so they can really pinpoint where I'm at exactly if I don't know where I'm at exactly. Some people take the ABCs of emergency, airspeed, best land, area checklist, and take it a step further, the ABCDE checklist, airspeed, best landing area, checklist, D is to declare, and then E is to execute everything we just learned. That's a, that's a, both of those are a gimme to me. But ultimately, it comes down to you're about to make the most important landing of your flying career, hobby, whatever you want to call it. 
And when you think about that, I, I want to take this a, a, a little a step back. I still have a lot more I want to cover here, but just a step back that there is a very high probability that your first and per, hopefully only emergency landing, if you have an off-airport landing, is going to be in a field somewhere. Very high likelihood. I mean, obviously there's roads and other things, but oftentimes that there's that perfect... We're so spoiled in Florida. We're in horse country here too, so it's just horse pastures and cow pastures. We're really spoiled. We have a lot of options. Um, forbid we had an emergency. But have you ever actually done a real soft field landing. I don't mean come into the pavement, you practice protecting that nose, you say you don't use any carb heat, you hold it off, you gently put the nose down, you keep the yoke back, that sort of stuff. I mean, have you really landed on a grass strip before? That's what I mean. I don't want your first real soft field landing to be also an emergency situation. Can you see how you're sort of stacking the odds against you a little bit in a way when you set it up that way, when you frame it that way? I encourage you, this is again beyond the scope of this podcast a little bit, but to get out there and find a public grass strip or a private one that'll let you do it. And there's plenty, geez, uh, if you're in Florida, X-Ray 60, the Williston Airport, which is where actually I'm personally in the process of moving. We're building a hangar out there. We're in the process of moving our entire maintenance uh, division, at least the maintenance for all our aircraft um, out there. Um, they're going to have a public grass strip, uh, 3618. They also have a 523 and a 1432 pave. So you have three runway choices out there. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be hard to find a crosswind out there uh, unless you're looking for it. So... Uh, but there's public grass strips that exist for you to go out and practice this. But that's the ABCs. That's assuming I'm flying along and I'm at 3,500 feet and I have an engine failure. What about the one I alluded to and worry about so much is that topic of an engine failure on takeoff. I teach, and, and this is just me, I teach if I am below 1,000 feet, I'm going straight, and I'm talking AGL. If I'm below 1,000 feet, I'm going straight ahead. Uh, okay, let me rephrase that. I'm going, I have a 30-degree window to either side, so 60-degree window in front of me, 30 degrees to my left, 30 degrees to my right, and that's about it. I do not teach the impossible turn. I am not a fan. Uh, it's called the impossible turn for a reason. Have people done it successfully? Some, but... Most of those people were sole occupants on board, light on weight, cooler temperatures, less, you know, no density altitude or negative density altitude even in some cases. You follow me with that? The people who try it and, and prove it to be impossible are the ones in a 172 losing engine, four people on, on board in Florida in July. It really stacks the odds against you in that case. I don't teach a turn back to the runway because think of it this way. The impossible turn is not just a 180 degree turn back to the runway. A 180 degree turn puts you on a downwind. You really need a turn about 230 degrees to take an aggressive angle back towards the runway. And then you still have a shallow right turn to make, assuming you turn to the left, another turn, let's say a right turn back to line up and straighten up with the runway. You're going to attempt that steep of a turn, that low, without any thrust. That's mind-boggling to me. It's called the impossible turn for a reason. 
I have a great video. Uh, if you just go on m0a.com or go on YouTube, go on Facebook, whatever, and just search engine failure on takeoff m0a, and that video will come up. And it's a recent one. I show the two situations, an engine failure on takeoff with runway remaining where you can nose it right back over, and I show an engine failure on takeoff without runway remaining, and that's where we get into this impossible turn situation. And really, that's a situation I want to avoid. Never a fan of putting ourselves in that spot. What are some other emergencies, though, we can continue to prepare for? What about in engine fire on the ground? When's the last time you ran through your engine fire on the ground checklist? What if the engine starts? What if the engine doesn't start? Did you know the goal is to, if it doesn't start, to continue cranking and attempt to suck those flames back down into that engine? Did you know that even if it does start, the goal is to run it up to a higher RPM, again, trying to extinguish that fire, suck those flames down into that engine? They want you to do that for 30 to 60 seconds. Your engine's on fire. They'd like you to sit in there for 30 to 60 seconds instead of evacuate and extinguish. They're trying to get you to extinguish the fire that way. You can, I can tell you, I've never had an engine fire on start, but if I did, I don't know if I'd be sticking around all that long. It's an overhaul and, and possibly totaling that airplane out anyways. Um, I'll do my best to extinguish it, but I'm going to be sure as heck getting out of there, especially if it's like a Cherokee 140 or something. Well, there's only one door and I'm sitting in the left seat and I've got someone else to think about getting out of that airplane. This is why we brief our passengers on in the event of an engine fire on start, I'll stay here. I'll handle the airplane, continue cranking. You grab the flight and the, the uh, fire extinguisher, which is right over there in our hangar or right down here between the seats and try to extinguish the fire and instruct them that the propeller is going to be spinning. So stay back from it. You want to try to extinguish from this area. Typically, they'd actually want to be in front of the plane. So any of that actually get the, the fire extinguisher um, powder and such gets sucked in and over the cowling would be part of the goal. But you have to educate them that if the prop is spinning, it's virtually invisible. There's just so many little factors to teach and little things like this that maybe you're not even thinking about. What about how to even declare an emergency? The aim suggests we, you know, mayday, mayday, mayday three times, and absolutely that'll certainly get everyone's attention. But if you simply just get on the radios and say, this is so-and-so, I've had an engine failure, I need some help, that's going to be just as effective um, at getting some attention and broadcasting that emergency. But you have to remember, frequencies like 121.5 are no longer officially monitored. Now, there's still some great organizations, Civil Air Patrol. There's still some airliners that still monitor 121.5. But they're not exactly sitting in front of a radar screen like they used to be where they could really pinpoint you and find out where you are. That's why it's important to squawk 7700 so you set off some alarms in the local. Maybe you're not even talking to the local approach controller or TRACON, whoever it may be. But you're going to stop some alarms in their area and they're going to be able to pinpoint longitude and latitudinal coordinates as to where you might be. Because we're learning all these great skills to survive this accident and, and walk away unharmed. But if you're out in the middle of a field, in the middle of the woods, whatever it may be, the next part is surviving that until someone comes out to find you. Do you, you see where I'm, where I'm going with this? communicating that emergency can be just as important. So this is my question. This is my challenge for you. When is the last time you practiced any of these emergency procedures I've mentioned so far? 
engine failure in flight, engine failure on takeoff, engine fire on start, engine fire in flight. What about just communicating and actually declaring that emergency? When's the last time you did that? Are you just being a current pilot or are you being and striving for proficiency? That is what we're really after. So listen, thanks so much for not only listening to this podcast, but sharing it with your friends. Um, we've got Sun and Fun coming up. I'm looking forward to seeing so many of you out at Sun and Fun. Uh, if you are uh, listening internationally, I've got a ton of great seminars. I'll be out at Aero Expo UK. I'm doing seminars in Germany, in Ireland. I'll be out in Italy doing all sorts of great seminars. And then there's Oshkosh. And then we start our 50-city tour after that. So kind of a crazy travel schedule. I'll be post, most of those dates will be posted publicly, and I'll be let, uh, keeping you up to date. It'll be goodpilottour.com. Once all those dates are official, they'll be up there. You'll want to watch that. So excited to be sharing, uh, just really just sharing aviation safety with you all. We are, we are in the business of creating safer, smarter pilots. So listen, enjoy the rest of your day. And most importantly, remember that a good pilot is always learning. Have a great day, guys. See ya.